At this time of year in Australia, we're reminded of the fragility of life. It's the fire season. So with a hot, dry summer, bushfires, very common. Then also, it's a time where you can quickly get flash flooding particularly in, on the coast in Queensland, northern New South Wales. You can see how rivers, and the level of the water can rise up just overnight with very heavy rain, continuous heavy rain. They burst their banks and flood and the flow of the water is so strong it can wash a house away, completely uproot it from its foundations, wash it downstream until it just collapses and disintegrates in the water and people lose their lives because of the power of nature, fast-flowing water. It reminds us of the impermanence of life, the fact that we're all really caught into the river of life flowing towards our death in an unstoppable way even if we try to grasp at the banks of the river hold on to things and we can't halt or reverse the process of aging sickness and ultimately death so this this is one of the factors that leads us to come to Dhamma to look for some deeper refuge and deeper understanding of life to find some peace that transcends the impermanent nature of this world birth, old age, sickness and death travelling in Thailand when we visit forest monasteries over and over again you hear teachers encouraging us to develop buddho the mantra and the meditation word it is both a word that we use as a technique of meditation but also symbolizes the awakened, enlightened mind. Brings us to recollect the Buddha and the quality of an in, qualities of an enlightened Buddha. So as we're meditating, whether we use the mantra Buddha or the breath, 
awakening our own minds to truth, using the power of truth, the power of Dhamma to change our way of thinking, our perceptions, to waken up out of old habits, karmic habits, the sleepiness of our attachments and cravings and ultimately the sleepiness of ignorance which conditions our mind. We're waking up from that with the mind of Bhutto. Ajahn Charles always encouraging us to develop the mind of Bhutto develop mindfulness in all postures through our daily practice, whether we're meditating or doing other activities, to bring up this state of awakened, awakened mindfulness, clear comprehension, to help cut through this habit of always falling into states of delusion, proliferating the mind that proliferates. Little by little to establish a firmness of mind, steadiness of mind that comes through the presence of mindfulness. So the mind isn't always dropping away into mental proliferation, getting caught into moods of pleasure and displeasure, distraction, sleepiness and so on. So our practice is developing mindfulness. It comes through, this teaching comes through the understanding that the mind is naturally undefiled. It's not getting caught up into different objects and sense impressions. These things are separate to the mind. The mind is just that quality of knowing. But because of the presence of ignorance, craving, attachment, we keep knowing things wrongly and creating suffering out of our experience as human beings. The mind is constantly making things out of whatever happens to us. The mind knows things, so it knows sense objects. We experience sights, sounds, taste, smell, touch. Then internal objects, dhamma, aramanas, that arise in the mind itself through memory and thought formations arising and it makes something out of each object as long as there's no mindfulness or wisdom present. And this process is going on all the time. So even though the mind is naturally pure, undefiled, because of the presence of avicca, it constantly is creating things, making 
something out of its experience and this leads to agitation, movement and suffering. Ajahn Chah says it's like water that can take on different colours if you add dye to it. Whatever the colour of the dye, the water will become that colour. So red or blue, brown or black. But of course you can always purify the water, remove the dye, the colour, through different processes and you can get back to water, just natural water which is without colour. <coughs> In the same way we meditate learning to establish mindfulness, make the mind firmer, more stable, more steady. So it's not constantly caught into this habit of mental proliferation. It's not constantly creating moods of happiness and suffering out of its experience, but just knowing the objects that come in contact with the mind but without forming or making anything out of them just knows we would say no and let letting go this is the essence of our practice of meditation bringing up the mind of Bhutto bringing more and more mindfulness to the present moment so it's more continuous to cut off the effects of craving and attachment which keep creating all kinds of mental activity, moods. As long as we lack the mind of Bhutto, we lack mindfulness, then we, the mind is subject to this process, avicca, pachaya, sankara, so ignorance, independence on ignorance, then mental formations, karmic formations arise, and these condition the mind, both wholesome and unwholesome conditioning the mind leads on ultimately conditioning process leads on to the arising of craving and attachment so we attach to this body and mind nama rupa with a sense of self that arises we identify with this body and mind and the different objects that we come into contact through our mind in the pleasure, the pain, the likes and the dislikes that we experience. We attach with a sense of self. <coughs> so we're constantly breaking through that or breaking up that process, that old habit of mind by establishing mindfulness, bringing the mind back to a place of quiet, peace where we can wisely reflect 
in the beginning of the practice and we tend to always get caught into kind of doubts. It's just another part of this karmic conditioning. We doubt about the practice itself. We might have some inspiration to practice and we've read and we've heard but then we still doubt about how does how does it work? How do we let go of craving and attachment? When should we practice mindfulness of Buddha, say, or the breath? When should we contemplate? Just this much can lead to all kinds of doubts, uncertainties. Especially as we experience states where our mindfulness is weak, and lots of mental proliferation comes up. It's very easy to fall into doubt. What should I do now? How should I practice? Ajahn Chah's teachings are very suitable for the mind that doubts a lot, that thinks a lot, doubts a lot. You cut through a lot of the doubt. You don't really have to think so much about, you know, when... How much samadhi do I need to meditate or to contemplate the Dhamma, to practice vipassana? Do I need to attain first jhana or fourth jhana? You'd be much more practical in his teaching, bring us back to just observe the mind, whether it's peaceful or not, in the present moment. So that's the place of practice. We're not practicing to gain Samadhi at some point in the future, the actual practice is to observe your mind in the present moment, establish mindfulness, to know your own mind, to have the mind of Bhutto in the present moment. If you have enough presence of mind, enough mindfulness, clear comprehension, the mind is stable enough, then you can investigate the Dhamma. When we say investigate the Dhamma, we just turn your attention inwards to look at your own body and mind as it is right now. And to teach the mind how it is, to show the mind, to observe, show the mind till it can accept the truth that this body is impermanent. Feeling is impermanent. Perception, mental formations are impermanent. And just as the Buddha taught the first five ascetics, both in the Dhammachaka Sutta and in the Anatalakana Sutta that we chant regularly, he taught them to just quietly investigate their own body and mind. Ask questions. Is this form, this rupa, permanent or impermanent? And does it last? Is it subject to change? To turn the mind to investigate that, just have enough mindfulness, presence of mind to investigate that, ask the question and bring an answer up. Mm, no, it's not impermanent. It's not permanent. It doesn't last. What is Impermanent, can you take as happiness and a source of happiness? Something that's always changing. Can you say that's sukha? 
You can't. You have to say, well, it's dukkha. It's difficult to be with a body, to endure a human body because it changes. Doesn't stay perfectly comfortable and healthy and feeling good all the time. It changes. So you have to accept it's dukkha. What is impermanent and what is dukkha, is it appropriate to take that as self? Me, mine, myself, and identify with it as self. Have to come to the conclusion we can't take it as self. We won't, this body won't last, it will disintegrate and go back to the elements. This is how the, the Buddha taught the first five ascetics to contemplate and this brought them to full enlightenment. They became arahants from that contemplation. What we call Sawaka Buddhas. And in terms of insight, same insight that a Buddha has. But they're not self-enlightened like a Buddha. And they rely on hearing the teachings. And this is the great merit and the great good fortune that a Buddha arises in the world and shares this penetrating wisdom into the Four Noble Truths that they develop and share that, teach that to others. So the first five ascetics, they had practiced meditation for no doubt many lifetimes and just in that lifetime they'd been following the Buddha prior to his enlightenment for five years. So no doubt they had great meditation skills, jhana, arupa jhana, great patience, endurance, great determination, great energy. But they'd never learned how to investigate in this way, to, to reveal this process of the conditioning process where delusion arises, the delusion of self arises. There's no one had had the the wisdom barami to penetrate that before, but now the Buddha had, so he guided them in how to investigate truth, use truth to free the mind from delusion. Now, Jen Chao said, that's all, really all we need to do is to establish enough mindfulness to separate between the mind that knows and the body and to teach the mind that this body is anicca, dukkha, anatta, until the mind can see that truth and accept that truth. Where it sees rupa as anicca, dukkha, anatta, then sanya, vetana, sanya, sankara, vinyana will also be exposed as anicca, dukkha, anatta. You can just see how practicing Dhamma, living in the monastery maybe for many years, training in mindfulness, investigating the Dhamma, listening to Dhamma and then investigating it, your perceptions change, sanya, anicca, your perceptions about this body and mind, how suffering arises, what is the way to peace, you know, it changes. When we come into the monastery, often see happiness in 
very superficial terms, having pleasurable experiences, family, friends, wealth, different kinds of pleasure that we can experience with our senses. But if you keep practicing, you live in the monastery, you develop mindfulness, you keep investigating these truths, your perceptions change. You see, mm, that's not really the source of deep, deep contentment, deep happiness. That's a very superficial, temporary kind of happiness from, from the world and what the world has to offer. The real happiness is the liberated heart that comes through developing insight, training the mind to accept anicca dukkha anatta in, in, in nama and in rupa, to see it, accept it, know it. So you can see perception changing. So perception is anicca. Perception itself changes, comes and goes, arises, passes away. But often we have to begin in the world. Even we don't have enough mindfulness and enough refinement of mindfulness to keep attention on our own body and mind for very long. There's not enough clarity. We have moments of it and then it fades and the mind goes back into more mental proliferation, moods and attachments and so on. So another pathway into the, this understanding, we can just contemplate the world around us first, what we can see and know around us. So we can contemplate, you know, the, the nature that's around us. We see birds and animals get born, grow up and die. We see trees that grow and die, changing phenomena in the, the nature around us or the presence of mankind we can see. Our buildings, we build new buildings, but as soon as you build them already they start to be subject to decay. You paint some new building and already the paint starts to get affected by the weather from day one. You pour concrete straight away, the weather starts to affect it, it gets discolored. Buildings are impermanent. So your mind is going deeper than just the superficial attachment to the conventional reality of tree or animal or person or building. You're seeing through to the anicca dukkha anatta of that experience, the rupa. Say if it's immaterial things, things without consciousness, rupa. Just see how impermanent they are. And yet, in the mind, the perception, if we don't investigate it, we just slap a label on, and this is a kuti or a sala or a house, a car, and the mind just sticks there with the superficial appearance, the conventional reality. And then it gets caught out when things change. Things decay, things get old, things break. We form opinions, all our, you know, a lot of our mental proliferation based on this kind of perception, 
you might say wrong perception of the material reality around us. We form perceptions, views, opinions. <coughs> this is mine, this is yours. This is beautiful, this is not beautiful, it's ugly. This is useful, this is not useful. You take a building, you know, when a building like this, whenever there's a large crowd, you can say, oh, this building is a very large hall, holds many people. When the large crowd is gone, you can say, oh, this is a very large hall. There's hardly any people in it. It's very spacious. Then another crowd comes, you say, oh, the hall is very small, there's no space to move around. The mind constantly labels, creates views and opinions about the world around us based on this superficial reality. But we're investigating that more closely to see the anicca dukkha anatta of buildings, people, animals, trees and so on going deeper into experience. And then what we learn outside, we draw back inwards, and look more closely at our this very being that we call self, this nama rupa, this body, this mind. In the same way, how we call this body me, myself, and automatically we just label it that way and we react to it constantly the feelings of pleasure and pain we attach to, we grasp at. We want things for this body, we want to experience things due to the power of craving and so on. But now we're investigating that and see, well, it's all based on a false perception of self and seeking pleasure where we can't ultimately find lasting pleasure seeking permanence where we can't find permanence. And perceptions will start to change when we investigate like this. That changing perception is changing our view from wrong view to right view, establishing samaditi in the way we look at things. So we're still in the world, but we look at the world differently through wisdom, through understanding, through mindfulness. This is how the human mind changes, purified, gets back to that more pure state, like the, the water that's had the dye color removed from it. We keep investigating our own experience, then the mind has to agree, mm, this is impermanent, this is not self. The more we do that, then that has a liberating effect. It liberates the mind from all kinds of suffering. Greed, anger, delusion based on our old false perceptions start to disperse, subside, fade away. Because what is not self, there's no need to get greedily attached to or attracted to or angry about because it's not self. There's no point getting caught into that kind of mental proliferation or if it arises, the mind doesn't want to prolong it or keep it in the mind anymore because it's just delusion and fed by delusion. So even though 
the mind might, might not be completely pure or completely released from ignorance, craving and attachment and the effects of it. But at least it doesn't fall under the sway of ignorance and craving and attachment for very long. Because there's enough mindfulness and enough understanding to see, oh, this is suffering and the cause of suffering. So the mind becomes more used to, more happy to return to Bhutto, to mindfulness, clear comprehension, wisdom that understands Anicca Dukkha Anatta. It prefers that, it prefers to go to non-anger rather than sit with anger prefers to go to non-greed rather than fall into greed or lust. Prefers to go to non-delusion, wisdom, rather than sticking with delusion. And this is the way you know, Sakaya Ditti, Wichikicca, Sila Patabharamasa start to fade away, drop out. The mind is being re-educated through the presence of knowing Bhutto, through wise reflection, it's re-educated to fall in line with truth, see truth through its own experience, just to know truth for itself. And that truth has a liberating effect on its on the mind. you'll see over time practicing for a long, a long period of time that, you know the opportunity for the mind of Buddha to arise is there all the time even in the periods where we feel very weak physically or mentally confused, distracted, moody, uncertain, doubting and there's always the opportunity to re-establish mindfulness, little by little. Bring it up. Any time of day, any place, any situation, you can establish mindfulness. So the more you value that, the more you, want, you start to respect mindfulness and wisdom as the most important qualities for a human being. And we start to respect Dhamma as a liberating force rather than put all our value in our moods and opinions and the things of this world, the mind inclines towards Dhamma, so it respects Dhamma. It holds Dhamma up high. As they say, one who sees Dhamma sees the Buddha, sees Buddha sees the Dhamma. Dhamma is something that the mind knows intuitively without having to reason and think a lot about it. It just knows Dhamma is actually the most important thing liberating force more than anything else and little by little that realization grows so I'll leave you with these words to reflect on tonight <laughs> 